I find that great leaders, they're confident, right? They have a vision, they have a mission, they're executing toward their vision. And I find that they're coachable in their own way. The best ones will listen to advice and consider it within their personal framework, oftentimes ignore it, but take the pieces that they feel will be helpful to them. Inspired Execution, hosted by Datastax Chairman and CEO Chet Kapoor, follows the journeys of leaders from the world's largest enterprises and fastest-growing startups. Jim Baum has spent over three decades in technology and is currently on the board of directors for several companies, from starting his first business called Mr. Tree to growing into a leadership role at Parametric Technology to taking Natiza through IPO. Jim is a master at helping organizations execute thoughtfully with speed. Today, you'll learn the steps to building a successful team, the biggest mistake companies make with regards to execution, why the best leaders are uncoachable, and how recording himself on a cassette tape helped Jim overcome his shyness. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Super pumped to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and uh, hopefully we'll have a great conversation. I should start by saying Jim is actually on the board at Datastax and uh, he was a one of the big reasons why I came to Datastax as well. So we've had a great working relationship over the last two and a half years and uh, continues to be somebody that helps guide the company through all the things that we're going through. So thank you on behalf of Datastax and for me. Well, thank you, Chad. I'm thrilled to be associated with Datastax. I'm proud to be associated with Datastax. And this journey for me has been, um, you know, several years now. I've never been more excited about the company than I am right now with the progress that's being made. So um, you, you guys are doing a phenomenal job. So you started at Parametric, Endeka, Natiza, IPO, IBM. You've done a lot, right? And your reputation is excellent in the industry. Tell us a little bit about your journey. I grew up in, uh, in upstate New York in a pretty small town. You know, mom was a nurse. Dad was a college professor. It was one of those places where you had to kind of figure out by yourself how to uh, have fun, right? How to sort of uh, do the things you wanted to do and including how to earn the things you wanted to have. If, if I wanted a new pair of skis or I wanted scuba equipment or whatever thing I was doing, I had to find a way myself to figure out how to obtain those things. And so I started out, you know, working and pretty focused on working from a pretty young age. And a little, little known story, Chet, I'll tell you, my, my first company actually was not parametric. My first company was a residential tree business in upstate New York called Mr. Tree. Now, just for context in the time, uh, you know, this was the late 70s, uh, early 80s. And some people listening uh, may recall or may have to look up on the internet a TV program called the A-Team. And there was a, a, a player, a character on that called Mr. T, right? And, uh, and so we called our business Mr. Tree. And of course, my last name is Baum, which in German means tree. And our tagline was, we'll go out on a limb for you. You probably now understand clearly why I have not had a career <laughs> in marketing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was the beginning. But then I, you know, I went to college. I studied engineering uh, and went to the, what was at the time a little startup company uh, called Parametric Technology in Waltham, Massachusetts, and started there as a corporate application engineer. Had no idea what I was doing. Uh, you know, I came out with a master's degree in mechanical engineering. Uh, this was a CAD company. I thought the technology was cool. Uh, a couple of people that I knew worked there. And so I went and joined the company. 
And, you know, as I reflect back on that time, um, I used the phrase, and so many of us who were at that company at the time used the phrase, you know, I grew up at PTC um, because it was a place where, you know, we worked hard, uh, we played hard. It was a relatively tough culture, a tough place to be, but we learned a lot. And, and those of us who started there young, earlier in our careers, we were all given, you know, opportunities to grow and take on additional responsibility and management roles and leadership roles that, that quite frankly, we had no business being in, you know, we were, we were not ready for, but it was, um, you know, a survival of the fittest, you know, true meritocracy kind of environment. And so a whole bunch of us, you know, just had a great run there and, and kind of grew up there. And, you know, in, in my case, I went from a corporate application engineer with less than 100 employees and $9 million in revenue when I started to having, you know, built the product management function, having been the company's first product manager, running the engineering function, running the marketing function, running a business unit called the Windchill Business Unit for my last three years there, running strategy for the company. I had all of these remarkable opportunities and exited the company as a 16B working for the CEO. So it was just a really terrific, uh, really terrific opportunity and, and place to grow up. And, uh, you know, in 2000, things were changing pretty dramatically and uh, the company was starting to face some hardship. And so I kind of realized at that point that I had a lot more fun at PTC when it was 80 people than when it was 5,000 people. And I wanted to go back and I wanted to start in an earlier stage company and kind of take what I had learned and apply it. And that was Indeca. Right? And so I came out of PTC and I went to Indeca and I partnered with the founder of Indeca, Steve Papa. And we built the team there together. You know, we built the go-to-market function. We figured out, you know, what the company would was going to be when it grew up, so to speak, and just had a wonderful run there. And and after five years, Ben and Deca left and, and went to a, you know, sort of a big data company, as we called it at the time. And that was Natiza, where I joined that company and partnered with the founder, a gentleman named Jit Saxena, uh, who was a serial entrepreneur and was looking for a succession plan. And I was his succession plan. And we were able to uh, continue to grow the company from about 30 million to about 300 million. And we took it public in 2007 and ultimately it was acquired by IBM. Um, and then after a year at IBM, I've sort of been more in project mode. You know, I, I did a project at Dying where I was the interim CEO for that company and we recruited a new CEO. And ultimately that company became acquired by Oracle. Um, and then I've, I've sat on a number of different boards and I continue to sit on a number of different boards, all kind of growth stage technology companies, you know, many of them earlier stage than data stacks, a few later stage than data stacks. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's really been, you know, kind of the journey, you know, and along the way, um, you know, have been married to my wonderful wife uh, for nearly 30 years. And we have two phenomenal children one who lives in New York City and one who lives in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, we couldn't be more proud of them. What has been the biggest obstacle personally you had to overcome? Chet, you have known me now for a couple of years, and so this may surprise you, but one of the biggest obstacles I had to personally overcome as a young professional was I was very shy. Uh, I was very uncomfortable speaking in front of groups of people. I don't believe you. It's true. This is I true. don't believe you. Can, you. I can do check not the believe records. you. You can check the records. But let me tell you how I got over it. So I was at PTC and, you know, I sort of had no choice but to get over it. 
I was in a product management role and I got put up in front of our user community. You know, we used to have big user conferences every year and I got put up in front of one of our groups and I had to give a presentation and I was scared to death. I mean, I really had no confidence that I could pull this off. And I worked and I worked and I worked on what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. And then ultimately what I did, and I still I, I see this in my mind's eye clearly, it's one of those events in your life, you know, that it's just clear in your mind when you think back on it. I was standing in my kitchen at the first house my wife and I owned together in Massachusetts. You remember those old telephone answering devices that would hang on the wall and they had one of those little miniature cassette tapes in them? I'm sure 80% of the yeah, people listening yeah. to this podcast have no idea what I'm talking about, right? But these things used to have a tape in them and you could record both your greeting and you could record you know, the messages of people who would call you on the phone and you missed the call, right? And go back and listen to your messages on the tape. Well, I used that little recorder for hours on end to give my presentation, right? I would give my presentation to the wall <laughs> and then I would listen to it. I'm like, oh, that was terrible. That was terrible. And I would give it again. Oh, that was awful. I've got to fix this and I've got to fix that. And I would listen to it again. And, uh, and that was how I prepared for my first sort of big conference public presentation. And honestly, that's what broke me. It broke me of my shyness and uh, allowed me to kind of come out of my shell, uh, which, as you no doubt have observed, <laughs> I have done. <laughs> so, yeah. You've taken what you thought was a weakness and made it a superpower. The next question is hard for me personally. What is one of your proudest accomplishments? And I keep thinking about what you and others and myself, you've all done and, and we our accomplishments actually, I think, go in time frames, right? You know, when early in your career, Mr. Tree could have been your biggest accomplishment, right? Because you started a business on your own with a bunch of people you knew and was somewhat successful. How would you answer that? What was one of your proudest professional accomplishments? The team that we built at Indeca. You know, Indeca was a real startup. There were maybe 20 people there when I arrived and partnered with Steve in that company. And I had responsibility for building sort of almost all of the functions in the company, right? There was engineering was there and there was an initial product there and there was a remarkable, talented, brilliant, fun technology team that was that was established. And then the beginnings of some go to market there. But we really had to build all the rest. And it's an incredible journey to try to put together the best team you can possibly imagine. You know, what we did at Indeca, I'm really proud of. Um, we surrounded ourselves with people who were better than us, smarter than us, more capable than us in many respects. We brought in people who were, you know, motivated, who, you know, were, were net positive contributors to our culture, who were net positive contributors to the, the intellectual capital of the company. We had a, you know, a culture that was fun-loving, yet serious, uh, execution-oriented, committed to building a great company. It was just a wonderful experience. And as I think back on it, and I think back on the people that we were able to attract and recruit and hire and retain in that company, I'm really proud of what we did. You've now been in the data space for a while. The way I think about it, enterprises have been going through a digital transformation for a long time. And, you know, it's the, the first part, the first leg was all about mobile apps, right? And, uh, and, and going and doing that. The next part was cloud. And, you know, those two continue, right? The, uh, the cloud journey continues for many enterprises. But then the third one, which is what some CIOs would say, the final mile, it's all about data. You've been doing data for a while, right? In the analytics and the data space, and you lived it in DECA, Matiza, 
And now you're looking at it from a, you're, you're getting a chance to look at so many different companies, right? Number one, what are your observations generally about data and how enterprises are adopting it? And secondly, if you were sitting with a CIO today, what would be your advice to them? You and I both, we've been in this business for quite a while. And, and for me, and, and I know for you, it goes back sort of well before mobile apps. Parametric technology, PTC, we were really a product of the migration off of the mainframe. We were mini computer and desktop computing based before really the desktop PC. So I raise that point because, you know, we've lived through a number of fundamental platform shifts, right? And each of those platform shifts has created opportunity and it's built companies like Datastax and Natiza and, and many others. But it also, I think, increases our capability, right? And sort of what, what problems can we solve with computing? Data and data analytics uh, and the use of data, we've been doing it forever, right? And certainly the retail industry was, was, they were probably the pioneers in the use of data for analytics. And, and now it permeates everything that we do. I kind of think about it this way, Chet. If we migrated now from on-prem client server type technologies to a cloud architecture, and that cloud architecture has allowed us to deploy mobile apps, and mobile apps have driven a need to be able to deploy data. And as we look out further and we continue to expand technologies in AI and machine learning and we see the you know the the really amazing frankly and exciting things that can be done as we add additional sensors to the global network through IoT we have more and more data streaming in all the time to me there's this real drive now kind of back to the edge right and you know if you think about what's happening now distributed edge computing that is somehow all coordinated through both networking and the network layer, through compute and the application layer, and through data and the distribution of data to the edge, it's opening up you know, additional new opportunities, right? And you think about there's so many organizations whose data lives at the edge, yet whose computing is, is quite centralized. You know, Think about, for example, a, an organization like a Starbucks, right? All their data, all their transactions are occurring very, very much at the edge. And for them to set up a new store and, or take down a store and move a store, they really do need to be able to sort of deploy, you know, effectively at the edge and have it integrate with the enterprise. And so I think there's a new frontier that's opening up here that I'm really excited about. I'm really excited about it in the context of data stacks. And I'm really excited about it in the context of sort of, you know, the general direction that, um, that enterprise computing is taking. There are a lot of people starting to think hard about it, but no one's actually cracked the code on how to do it yet. Right. And that's the interesting part. And doing it, like you've said, at scale on the edge is hard because it, it you almost have to do the entire stack. And the stack probably is different than what you actually have in the cloud, as an example, not on the edge. I love that. I see that all the time. And I, I'm super excited about how we and others figure it out together, because I don't think it's going to be one company just doing it. Yeah. And doing all of that in a secure environment, right? Because almost by definition, you know, uh, distributing computing, networking and data to the edge creates, you know, security risks that, you know, we haven't really even thought of yet. Right. And so there's an awful lot of work to be done. And for me, it's encouraging in sort of the a continued momentum and direction of our industry, right? Of this this world of enterprise computing that we've lived in for so long. It's not yet mature, right? We're not there yet. 
One of the uh, things that we do at Datastax, uh, as you're well aware, is uh, inspired leadership principles that everybody has to go through. And one of the principles is execute thoughtfully with speed. What do you think is the biggest mistake? As somebody who's done this before, what's the biggest mistake you see companies making with regards to thoughtful execution with speed? People sometimes confuse activity with execution, right? <laughs> and, and they're very different. Um, and, you know, if you measure activity, you get activity. Uh, and if you measure, you know, outputs and outcomes, um, you get execution. And so I do think one of the things that people are not as disciplined enough about as they could be and, and probably should be is this discipline associated with execution and being able to execute within a framework, right? And a framework that everyone understands. And, and I think having that framework is a way for people to understand, you know, what activities are needed in order to produce execution, right? And without that, it can often be somewhat chaotic, right? And and so, you know, early on in a company's life cycle, it's very chaotic, right? And so much of it is about finding the way, figuring out the product, figuring out product market fit, figuring out product channel fit, uh, figuring out how customers buy, why they buy, what value you create for them, all those things. And there's so much that needs to happen. It's almost by definition quite chaotic. But as a company scales some and matures, it no longer needs to be as chaotic and there needs to be some framework within which execution occurs. And, you know, I think to give an example of that, as we already discussed, you know, I kind of grew up at, at PTC, which is the you know, the, the place in the industry where one of the more popular uh, sales frameworks was developed called Medic. And, you know, whether companies use Medic or not is not relevant to this point. The, the point is there's a framework there, right? And with that framework, there are very measurable uh, states. There are very measurable outcomes. And people can be held accountable to those. And people who are executing within this framework, they know what they need to do, right? They know the definition of success. That discipline within the context of that framework produces some really remarkable results in terms of, in this case, you know, sales process efficiency. Um, and so I just use that example. But, I, but I, I see all too often there is no framework and there is no discipline around a framework. And I think that's the mistake people make. They confuse activity with, uh, with execution. You may have heard this, but definitely a lot of people inside Datastacks hear it a lot, which is activities don't pay for college educations. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. right. And so, uh, or the other one that I use with uh, with some of our sales leaders is, can I cash that? Can I take it to a bank? And uh, just because you know, you unless you have a purchase order or you have a contract, right? You cannot right. actually cash it. And so, that's right. So, it's an interesting because everything else leads to that, but you have to get there. That's right. On the personal side, who inspires you? I think about that in the context of, you know, professional inf inspiration. I think about that in the context of personal, uh, artistic, intellectual inspiration. I get, inspi I get inspired pretty easily. I had an opportunity recently to um, spend some really great quality time with uh, a famous blues musician named Joe Lewis Walker. And uh, Joe is a, you know, he's a legend. Uh, he's played with all the greats, right? And uh, I had such a great time with him and I find him inspiring. You know, his story to me is inspiring. You inspire me, Chet. I mean, I see the, the passion and the enthusiasm and the energy and the intellect and the skill set that you put to work to build data stacks. That's inspiring, right? It really is. It's a really hard answer. Uh, there's no sort of one or two person answer for me in, in that one. It's, uh, 
I find myself inspired by somebody on nearly a daily basis. That's a very unique for all the guests we've had. That is the most unique answer we've had. That's really good. Thank you. What advice would you give a younger version of yourself? There is no doubt that I made choices in my career that were at the expense of, you know, my, my personal life, uh, my you know, we, we like to use the term work-life balance, right? But, but um, th- there's no doubt that, you know, s- certainly during the PTC years, uh, the Indeca years, the Natiza years, I was always at work, right? And whether I was physically in the office or physically commuting to the office, mentally, I was always at work. In fact, I learned probably when I was in my late 20s that, uh, or maybe 30, even early 30s, I learned that the only way I could really get away from work on a vacation was to just to take two weeks off and not one week. Because if I took one week, I never left. And if I took two, by the middle of the second week, I kind of chilled for a little while and then I went back to work. And so I, I think the message out of that is I do think the balance is quite important. And I'm lucky. I feel very, very blessed and fortunate to have the the family that I have, the relationship I have with my children and with my wife, which I cherish. But you know, it was it was not easy. I think I missed the balance bus, you know. <laughs> and uh, I think if I were to do it again, I'd find a way to do a better job there. I actually think, Jim, you've done great. The thing about balance, I always reflect on this because I think the struggle with balance is what it's about. Because I don't think anybody achieves it. Right. Because it's you're always trying to go back and forth on how much time I'm spending here versus how much time I'm spending there. So I've come to peace with the fact that the struggle is the reward or it is the struggling that gets you there. I, I think you're right. It is the struggle. And you, you reflect back on the st- struggle and you're, um, you know, you have a sense of accomplishment, right, for having uh, survived it, right, for having gotten through it and, and achieved something as a result of it. So it is definitely part of the journey. Rapid fire, quick responses. You are a certified pilot. What's your favorite place to fly? My favorite places to fly are the little grass airports around northern Vermont, where I fly in my cub. So I have an airplane that goes pretty high and pretty fast, and I love it. It's wonderful, and it gets me from A to B. And then I have this little airplane that goes really low and really slow. And it's just more fun than you could possibly imagine. And uh, we, we bounce in and out of the grass strips all over northern Vermont. And, uh, and it's a tremendous amount of fun. And these are not backyards of people, right? They're actual airports. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a dinner party with any three people dead or alive, who would be on your invite list? Probably the first person on the list would be my grandfather, my father's father. I never knew him. He died in an American Airlines Ford Trimotor plane crash right around 1930. It was one of the early plane crashes, and he was a uh, he was an entrepreneur. He ran a construction business, and he was traveling from um, Tennessee to I think Chicago. I don't remember exactly, but the plane crashed, and everyone on board was killed. My father was seven years old, and so my father grew up without him, and uh, and I never had a chance to know him. And um, my dad and I chose very different paths in life, right? He is a PhD in chemistry and, and worked as a college professor his whole career. And, and I sort of went a different way and studied engineering and went into, you know, this crazy startup world that I've lived in for all these years. And uh, I think it would be really cool to, uh, to, meet, to meet that man and understand how he thought about the world. Another one 
and I'm sure this is an answer you've not gotten before. Um, I would actually like to meet Charles Steinmetz. Charles Steinmetz was some some people refer to him as uh, you know the the father of electricity. He was in upstate New York. He had some affiliation early on with General Electric, as I understand it. But he was a mathematician and electrical engineer, and he really fostered the development of uh, alternating current, right, which really is the foundation of the whole electrical grid today. And the reason I'm fascinated by him is that when I was in either fifth or sixth grade, I don't remember which it was, but I received an award along with a couple of other kids in my class, and it was called the Steinmetz Award. And it was for, you know, we had some we had some aptitude in math and science, and we were recognized for that. I've always been sort of interested in, well, who was this guy, you know, and what did, what did he do and how did he think and whatnot? So I think I'd have him on my list. I'd love to know how Charles Lindbergh planned the flight across the Atlantic, right? I would love to have that conversation with him. Uh, I think that would be really cool. And so I think those guys would probably be on my list. There, there are others that I'm fascinated by most of them kind of science and technology related, you know, Nikola Tesla, really interesting guy. Wozniak, I think would be a lot of fun to talk to about the early days of uh, personal computing. Same with Gates. I think that would be very interesting to have those conversations only because I have it within my lifetime. I have the perspective of this entire journey, right? And so it would be really interesting to talk to people who had insight you know, back at the beginning of the journey that really sort of launched so much of what we, uh, of what we're doing today. But yeah, I think I'd probably have those three guys, my grandfather, Charles Steinmetz and Charles Lindbergh. So you're a student, you're a leader, you know many great leaders, uh, and you spent a lot of time coaching. Across great leaders, what is the one trait you think they share? They're not coachable. <laughs> <laughs> And I say that uh, sort of joking, but sort of not, right? I, I find that, you know, great leaders, they're confident, right? They have a vision, they have a mission, they're executing toward their vision. And I find that they're coachable in their own way. The best ones will, will listen to advice and consider it within their, their personal framework, oftentimes ignore it, but take the pieces that they feel will be helpful to them. And so I guess it comes back to a, a degree of confidence and, and self-assuredness that I think, you know, every great leader I've known shares that trait. Jim, this was a blast. We've spent a lot of time over the last few years, but uh, this has just been awesome to, um, to get to know you and, and talk about your path and getting the listeners to get a good view of how you think about things and your perspective on things. So I really, really appreciate the time. It's I've had a lot of fun doing it. Well, Chet, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It really was a great honor to be here. I'm flattered that you uh, asked me to have this conversation with you, and it was, it was a ton of fun. And again, you know, all the best. Thanks so much. To build the best teams, you have to hire people who are smarter than you and create a fun and execution-oriented culture. Remember Jim's advice. Don't confuse activity with execution. Make sure to measure outputs and outcomes and have a framework that everyone in the company understands. Finally, strive for balance in work and life. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Inspired Execution Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. And drop us any questions or feedback at inspiredexecution at datastacks.com.